Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. So when you're ready, sir, let's get going. Yeah, let's go. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My very special guest today is Andrew Wilkinson. He's building the Berkshire Hathaway of the internet. Uh, Andrew and I have known each other uh, for quite a long time. We're going to be talking right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Hey, Tobias. Great to be here. Uh, tell us a little bit about Tiny. So Tiny is a holding company for wonderful internet businesses. Um, and we buy uh, profitable... Uh, internet businesses that have generally stood the test of time. So we're not buying startups. We're not buying drones, VR, AR, Bitcoin. We don't do any of that stuff. We um, we find kind of simple, boring, predictable internet businesses. Uh, and we generally buy them from founders. So it's people who have been in the business for five to 10 years and they're looking to go off and do their next thing or retire. Um, and the reason they sell to us over private equity is we keep it very, very simple. So we do deals in uh, 15 to 30 days, just like Berkshire Hathaway. We make an offer in two or three days. We close super quick. Um, so no BS. And then we don't mess with the businesses. Um, so when we acquire a company, we keep the staff in place. Uh, we keep the culture in place and all the operating rhythms. And we hold the business for the long term. We don't. We're not setting out to flip them or financial engineer them or anything else. And so uh, we tried to kind of be great foster parents to wonderful businesses. How do you uh, how do you track down the businesses? How do you find the businesses that you're looking for? So we found like we for a while we used to reach out to people all the time and occasionally something will catch our eye and we'll um, you know it's like the you know you're walking down the street and you see the most beautiful woman in the world and you have to go chase her down and say hello. Uh, that only happens once in a while. Uh, so there's a few businesses I can think of where they were just so exceptional that we had to kind of Dennis the Menace, the founder, and bug them. Uh, and it, it's worked a few times. But a lot of the time we find the best deals come from people who have heard our story on a podcast like this or an article or followed me on Twitter. Um, and they, they say, hey, I listened to an interview with you and what you're doing resonates with me and I'd love to talk. Um, so just like Berkshire, we don't want to be participating in some competitive bid process and dealing with bankers. We want to talk to somebody who uh, wants to do a straightforward deal and wants to sell to us. I I know that your your background, uh, for folks who don't know, I think at 19, you started Meta Labs, which is a product design shop. Just Meta Lab. Meta Lab. Everyone I'm does sorry. that. <laughs> not not, not the plural. That. Everyone pluralizes it. Um, good. So how, how did that... How did what, what did you what did you see when you to start that up? How did that evolve, and where did you get to that? You still own it, or you, you've you've recently bought it back? Still, I still own it. Um, so, well, the story starts a little earlier, actually. So, uh, I grew up in Vancouver, Canada, and when I was fifteen, my dad came to us, uh, my brothers and I, and said, 
hey, great news, kids, we're moving to Victoria. And Victoria, Canada is an even smaller city on the west coast of Canada. And to me, it was like moving to just Kalamazoo, middle of nowhere. Didn't want to go there. And so we move and me and my brothers are kind of bored and we have this summer where nothing's going on. But uh, my dad feels sorry for us and he gets us a new computer and cable internet. And I just became completely obsessed and I started fooling around with the internet and learning how to build websites. And so uh, I was on a chat room and I met this kid from Hawaii and we started brainstorming about ideas and we said, hey, let's start an Apple news site. And so we started doing that and it was just a hobby, but I had nothing to do. And so I became completely obsessed with it and I started um, posting articles and, you know, reviewing products and posting news. And before we knew it, we were actually breaking stories and getting a ton of traffic. And at first I was, you know, my first kind of big break was going, Hey, um, you know, maybe I can get companies to send me free stuff to review. And so I emailed all these companies and a week later, like $10,000 of stuff shows up at my front doorstep from FedEx. And I'm like, well, that's pretty cool. This is great. And then we started getting so much traffic that we were able to go to Microsoft and sell ads to them. And so all of a sudden we're making thousands of dollars a month from advertising. And so really, I, you know, I ended up hiring a team of writers. I ended up interviewing Steve Jobs and traveling to all sorts of conferences. So I had this incredible experience in high school. And when I look back, you know, at the time I didn't recognize I was doing business. I didn't know what I was doing. Business to me was this thing that my dad brought home in a briefcase looking sad. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I kind of got my MBA in high school. Like I, I pretty much skipped high school and, uh, was on the phone negotiating ad deals and doing email and hiring people and stuff. And so I started really young. And when I graduated high school in 2004, I went to my dad and I said, dad, you know what? Uh, I think I'm just going to keep doing this internet stuff. I'm not going to go to school. And we're driving down uh, down the street in our old Volvo, and he slams the brakes on the car, and he points at a gas station, and he says, that's you, you're going to be pumping gas. And so he sits me down, and he's like, look, you got to go to university, you got to make something of yourself. And so he talks me into going to school, and I say, Dad, well, what should I go for? And he says, well, you're doing journalism. Why don't you do journalism? And so... Uh, I go to uh, journalism school in Toronto, and uh, on day one, I'm just going, what am I doing here? The professors are all saying they just got laid off from the paper, and that's why they're, <laughs> they're professors. And uh, we're learning this kind of stodgy, old-school newspaper journalism. And so very quickly, within two months, I'm like, I'm out of here. And I decided that uh, I wanted to go move to San Francisco. I wanted to be you know, where the heart, in the heart of it where everything was happening and go work at Google or something, but I was dead broke. I'd given away this website to the guy that I ran it with, and uh, I I needed to make some money to move. And so I decided that I would do some freelance web design, and I realized that if I pretend to be an agency, instead of saying, hey, I'm Andrew Wilkinson in my parents' basement in my underwear, I could probably win more work and look more legitimate. And so I designed a really slick-looking site. I came up with the name Metalab, and if you'd looked at this website, you would have thought, oh, wow, this is a very sophisticated agency. Um, but in reality, it was just some teenager. And I started using the sales skills that I developed running that website to go out and call startup founders who had raised venture capital in 2005, 2006. 
And I, I suddenly, before I knew it, I was doing thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars of revenue um, with very good margins because my only cost was a computer and a desk and internet. And before I knew it, I had all these clients in San Francisco and none of them really knew I was in Canada. They would say, Hey, can you meet me in union square tomorrow? And I'd get on a plane really quickly and fly down. Uh, cause we're about an hour That's and a half commitment. away. Yeah, it was awesome. And so what ended up happening is, um, I ended up getting a reputation and metal spread via word of mouth in Silicon Valley. And it became one of the premier product design agencies. We ended up going on to design Slack, work with Coinbase and Shopify and Tumblr and all sorts of really cool companies early on. And as a result, we started getting big clients like Facebook, Google, Amazon, Walmart, um, all sorts of Fortune 500s. So that business started um, making profit. And at the time, I didn't know what I was doing. Like I was literally just doing bank balance accounting where at the end of the month, I'd look at the bank balance and say, okay, there was 30,000 at the beginning. Now there's 40,000. I guess this is going well. Um, and around that time, uh, I didn't know what to do with the money. I didn't know anything about investing. And so I looked around and I said, man, this agency is a lot of work. I have to go sell constantly and be on planes. Uh, this SaaS software stuff sounds pretty cool. And so I ended up taking the money I made to doing that. And I started a SaaS software business building software to help me run the agency. So time tracking, invoicing, estimates, that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, it was amazing. We launched it and I would wake up in the morning and I'd made 200 bucks while I slept. And I just got hooked on that. I, I absolutely loved it. And so, um, I continued doing that for years. And, um, by about 2013, I was running five companies as CEO, um, you know, me and my now business partner, my CFO, were just sweating it out in boardrooms trying to figure out what to do. We had over 100 employees and we just really didn't like our lives. And we went to a mentor and we were complaining to him. And he said, look, why don't you just sell one of the businesses? That'll allow you to take a little bit of a breather and you can decide what you want to do. And so we did that. We sold a stake of one of our companies and uh, all of a sudden we had a bank balance. We had a balance sheet before we'd always just had a lot of cash flow. And um, when we when we got that money, we went, okay, we need to learn about investing. Maybe we'll do real estate or stocks. We didn't really know anything about it. And I got really lucky. The first book I picked up was Snowball about mm. Warren Buffett. And when I read about Buffett, everything just clicked for me. This idea that you've got this guy who sits on his ass reading all day, and yet he owns 70 companies and has all these public market uh, you know, stocks and 400,000 employees. And as somebody who is miserably running a 100-person company, I was going, this is amazing. This is the ultimate level of delegation. And so uh, I spent about six months reading every single book I could on value investing. Yours was one of my favorite, Deep Value. That's very kind. Uh, Thank you. And, uh, and I just got obsessed with it, this idea of being able to buy a dollar for 50 cents. And so what I ended up doing with my business partner's help is going out and recruiting CEOs to run all of our businesses, stepping away, which was a little hard at first, made a few mistakes, hired you know the wrong CEOs, learned how to incentivize them and hire the right people. Um, and then we, we struck out and we said, you know what, we've talked to a lot of private equity firms over the years and it was always a really miserable experience and it didn't really align with what I wanted. For me as a founder, 
I was very high pace. I liked making a decision quickly. I liked straightforward, simple deals. And uh, I, I wanted to sell to somebody who understood my company, my baby, the thing I'd spent 10 years building. And so what would happen is we'd get these reach outs from private equity firms and they'd just take you through this miserable four to six month process. And, you know, first you talk to an associate and you spend two weeks talking to them and then you realize the associate's some college kid who doesn't know what he's talking about. Okay, now we're going to talk to the partner on the phone. We're going to spend two weeks talking to them on the phone. Then they're going to come visit us. They're going to show up at our office wearing suits. They're going to freak everybody out. They're going to use a bunch of financial terms that me as a founder at the time didn't understand at all. And they're going to give me a really rosy term sheet. Then they're going to spend two months trying to find reasons to renegotiate with me. And then right at the last minute, they're going to try and put a bolt in my head and give me a big earn out. Right? And I just went through that process and went, this is like you know, meeting someone you're dating and saying, um, you know, you're, you're secretly religious, but you don't tell them that until the day before you get married. <laughs> this is ridiculous, right? So um, I just thought, hey, if Buffett can do this, Buffett's doing billion dollar deals. Why can he do them in seven, you know, seven to 10 days and private equity can't? And so we set out to, to basically become the acquirer that we wish we could have sold to back when we were selling businesses. And we founded a holding company that we call Tiny. We rolled all of our existing businesses into it and we started acquiring companies. Um, and our playbook is really, really simple. Um, you know, like I said earlier, we look for um, businesses that uh, will exist over the long term, that have already proven themselves, that are profitable, um, that are doing something good in the world. You know, we don't want to be buying anything we feel bad about owning, um, and that are simple that are very understandable that I could explain to my mom. So we're not buying complex software or anything that requires a lot of R&D. We're buying job boards, online communities, uh, you know, simple meal planning apps. Uh, we're buying design agencies, which we deeply understand. Uh, you know, a wide variety of businesses. Um, so anyway, we've been doing that now for seven or so years. Uh, we're up to about 25 companies in total now, um, and you know, 400 plus employees or something like that. But it's really wonderful because I get to spend all my time, um, you know, focused on hiring great CEOs, looking at deals, and just kind of overseeing everything. And you know, I'm not quite at the Warren Buffett thing where you have no calendar, but I get to spend most of my time talking to interesting people like you and uh, thinking and reading. So it's a good light. And in the middle of nowhere in Victoria. So that's good. So in terms of uh, when you find something that you want to buy, how, what distinguishes your process from the private equity process, which is, it's a little bit de deceptive. They sort of give you a headline number and give you some headline terms. And then they're basically trying to backpedal, knowing that you've invested all this time in this. And it's going to be harder for you to sort of you've sunk you've got the sunk costs so you're trying to do something more like buffett where it's a simpler deal what what what, what distinguishes a, your deal it's a fair price for where the business is today and like private equity we have an idea of what the business can be worth if we can improve it and one of the things we've noticed is that often founders are incredible at one thing. They have a really great superpower. So they might be really, really passionate about the product they create, but they may not enjoy marketing or sales or finance or other things. And we have such a broad experience that we can look at it and go, wow, they're incredibly growing organically. 
and they're already profitable and everything's already working because they have such a good product, what would happen if we added a really good um, you know, head of marketing and we started allocating budget there? Um, and then we'll also often identify simple levers we can pull just to accelerate growth in small, simple ways. Um, it's that, that classic Andy Grove line of, you know, they were panicking over some big business decision. And he said, if we got fired today and a new management team came in, what would they do? Because it's often clear, but founders get into this kind of myopic bubble. And so the difference is we, I mean, private equity has their secret number of what they're really willing to pay. And then they have their headline number. We just tell them what the secret number is and we tell them that immediately. And it's funny, like we sometimes will not even get on the phone with an, with a potential acquisition unless they've already discussed our valuation and they've said, I'm open to that because so much time is wasted on both sides of hour long, you know, multi-hour, multi-day sometimes phone calls before you get to this key piece of information. And going back to the idea of you're going to marry somebody, you want to know on the first date they're Jewish and that means a lot to them and you're not Jewish or whatever. And you can have that conversation. You don't want that on day 60. And that's what private equity does. How do you think about valuation? How does that um, play out? The private multiples used to be much, much lower. They were sort of three to four times free cash flow or revenues. Or How do you think about that for these types of businesses? Well, we're usually looking at the durability of the business. So if somebody has a business that's a sandcastle, um, we'll buy, you know, we'll buy anything as long as it's a good business doing something good on the internet that we can understand, we'll look at it, but we'll pay a hell of a lot more for a competitive advantage in a moat. So for example, when we bought Dribble, which is the largest community of designers on the internet, it's one of the top thousand sites. Um, I like to say it's like a New Zealand business. And what that means is that it's energy independent. It has its own food supply. It doesn't have any middlemen. It exists away from nuclear war. And frankly, Nobody's paying attention to it. And Dribbble is like that because nobody Googles it. They go to it directly. It has millions of people that go there every day, and it's a key habit. That's a business with a moat. That one we were willing to pay a really high multiple on earnings. But if somebody comes along and says, hey, I've got a job board for finance people, and we look around and we go, you know, this is a good business today, but... LinkedIn jobs and indeed and all these other people are competing and they're venture backed. I don't know if I'm going to pay a huge multiple on that. Maybe I'll pay two to four, but on the better business, man, I'd pay up to 20 times or 30 times if it makes sense. And I think that goes back to, you know, with Munger and Buffett, they bought Coke at 24 times earnings and it did really well for them because they could project out what's going to happen. And it was very predictable and there's a huge moat. So I think it just depends on the durability of earnings. You've got the extreme delegation that, or it sounds like you've got the extreme delegation that Buffett and Munger have put in. And part of that is getting the right person in as CEO and incentivizing them properly. How do you think about hiring and incentivizing? Well, our our kind of playbook has been to find people who have already done it before. What we used to do is hire people who we really liked and we thought they had a lot of potential in moxie and we learned the hard way that while you get to work with a lot of wonderful people that way it's actually really hard because people learn on the job and so what's worked really well for us is um a 
finding people who we're connected to in some way. So when we're going to recruit a new CEO, we go and we pull our group of existing CEOs and say, who's the best person that you know that could run a business like this? So we're vetting them through our network, which helps a lot. So we get great candidates that way. Um, but the key thing we're looking for is somebody who's already done it. You know, it goes back to if you want someone to build your deck, you want to hire a red seal carpenter who's been doing it for 20 or 30 years. You don't want to hire some college kid who thinks he can kind of figure it out. And so we look for people who are executives or CEOs at businesses that are very similar to the ones that we're acquiring, but have done it at scale already. So when they go back down to size, they know exactly all the dance moves that they can pull to get back to you know that scale. It's not a requirement that the business that you're buying has management in place because that's something that Buffett, that's kind of a refrain of his. Yeah, that's a huge advantage for us. Um, you know, it's interesting. Like we started, Buffett started as an investor. We started as operators. Yeah, entrepreneurs and to operators, right? Yeah, I think like, you know, if you're buying C's candies and it's existed for 40 years and it has a deeply ingrained culture, you need a company man to run a business like that. Um, and we'll certainly look at promoting from within, but the businesses we acquire are often so simple and small that, um, and, and the founders are so tapped out and ready to leave usually, um, that if they're leaving, we have a massive opportunity to pull someone in and we just have to be careful not to mess with the culture. So the number one thing we say is, look, if people like to work remotely and they, we don't, you know, they don't do a lot of meetings and X and Y and Z, we really try and stay true to that and we don't synergize the businesses at all. So we really try and leave them as an island to do their own thing. So similar to Berkshire in that way, but the management change, it gives us a huge advantage again over private equity because private equity takes that same approach of the founder has to stick around. We just won't tell them until the last minute. Do you uh, like it if they're around to sort of in some sort of advisory role or that's the, you don't care either way? Oh, yeah, we definitely want the founder. Um, you know, sometimes they're sticking around in the business and they're going to stay and run it for a period and we'll work together to transition. Sometimes they will, um, you know, just be an advisor or, you know, they have equity. Usually we keep the founder with some percentage of equity so that they're still a part of the story. Um, but it just depends on what they want. Some founders are just like, I want to sell. I never want to think about this business again. And they disappear. Other founders, I get emails from every week saying, Hey, have you thought about this and that, you know, either of them are fine. I guess a a comp for what you're doing is maybe something like constellation, Mark Leonard and constellation. Do you, is that fair? Is that not fair? No. Yeah. It's not really because what constellation does is they synergize. So what they'll okay. do is they'll go out, it's similar to Vista. So they'll go out and they'll buy, um, you know, uh, software for managing car rental dealerships. They'll buy one of them. Then they'll go out, they'll buy one big one. Then they'll roll up a hundred smaller ones. They'll cram them all together and they'll use the same sales team and stuff. What we're doing is the opposite of that. We're buying one great business and it exists by itself and we don't slam any of the businesses together. Um, I think that synergy, synergy stuff is so intoxicating, but it so rarely works. And it's really difficult to keep great talent because they don't feel the autonomy that we currently provide them. Like our CEOs, literally, they send us a monthly financial report. They send us a quarterly SWAT. And then we say, call us if you need us. And there's no board meeting. We don't call them. 
We leave them alone. They make all their own decisions. The only thing we make decisions around is capital allocation. So if they want to go out and spend five million bucks on an acquisition or a big R and D project, we're going to approve that. You probably, I mean, I, I imagine that you mostly totally self-finance it all comes you're, you're just reinvesting what you're getting but do, would you ever take outside capital or look to list the business we've looked at a lot of different stuff the challenge for us i mean so far um almost everything has been compounded from the original business from metalab um and that's been crazy like i remember doing a projection of what would happen if we compounded at you know 25% over 10 years? And the numbers seem crazy to me, and now the numbers came true. So that's <laughs> been really, really gratifying to see. Um, what we've what we've done is um, you know we've had enough. We've had a lot of people approach us about investing their money, um, and until recently, we always said we'll never take any outside capital because we're having enough trouble just investing our own free cash flow in the market we're in it was crazy. Like the multiples were very high and expectations were high. Um, but given what's happening right now, we're actually just about to close uh, a fund right now with a few uh, high net worth folks and family offices. Um, so we're really excited about that. And we're still the largest uh, single LP. So we're putting all of our free cash flow into that. Um, but it's going to be an experiment for us. We've never done it before and we're keen to try it. Is that in response to the volatility in the market or was that something that was planned prior to that? No, I mean, literally, I um, I got a call from uh, an investor I know and he just said he was going to, he was, um, he had called me before about investing and we'd done one deal before just as partners and he said, you've got to raise the distress fund. Like, it's just a complete no-brainer. Um, and we're just seeing, we think there's going to be a lot of uh, opportunity in the next six to 12 months by virtue of the fact that the market has sort of come back a little bit. So that was, I imagine it's the, the sort of stuff that you're looking at is asset light, compound growth, pr probably better businesses, the sort of businesses that do get higher multiples. So that's, I imagine that's a challenge um, meeting the expectations of, of vendors, meeting the expectation of the seller. It's it's been It's been interesting because you get people where, they come to you and will say, okay, we would pay, you know, eight times uh, free cash flow for your business. And they go, well, you know, my biggest competitor, which is venture backed, raised $5 million at a $300 million valuation. And we say, yeah, but they sold minority pref equity and that's very different. And they're doing venture. You're a bootstrap business. And so I think one of the challenges for founders is, they don't really understand the finance world sometimes and they'll see these crazy headline numbers not realizing that the founder has basically sold their soul and put a gun to their head and said, I'm going to deliver a 50x return or else. Um, so that's been a challenge in this market. But, you know, I think everyone's just been so optimistic for so long that, you know, people, um, you know, people are just more um, a little more uh conservative about the kind of stuff they'll accept but i think that we'll see you know some opportunities over the next six months certainly in the venture world because i think a lot of these companies will not be able to raise their next venture round but there's a lot of exceptional businesses that have been built they're just not venture scale they've got a good business model they've got um you know a profitable like on a gross margin basis they're 
very profitable, but they've got a very bloated cost base because they're based in San Francisco and they have a huge team and fancy offices and stuff. And so we think there'll be some opportunities to restructure venture businesses and give them a good home. Um, and that's part of what we're you know, looking at raising for. What uh, industries and sectors do you think are the most interesting right now? Oh man! Well, you don't I mean, you don't think in those terms. You just sort of you're I, you're just looking at what whatever comes in the door. We're pretty much looking at everything that comes in the door. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of online communities and digital goods. So, um, for example, we have a business that sells Shopify themes and Shopify apps, and it's one of the best businesses in the world. You spend thirty to fifty thousand dollars developing a theme. And it's just code. And then you sell it, you know, sometimes hundreds of thousands of times for 300 bucks a pop. And so it's very, very high margin. You've got lock-in into an ecosystem in Shopify. Um, you know, businesses like that are super interesting at times like this because I think that when there's, when people are financially constrained, they start thinking about, okay, well, how can I make more money? People get more entrepreneurial. And then also a lot of habits are being changed right now around retail. So people can't shop in retail and so they're shopping online. And so Shopify is naturally getting boosted significantly by this as people start stores and try to diversify their income. Um, so right now we're kind of asking ourselves, um, what doesn't change? What can exist in this new economy where everyone's stuck at home? And for the most part, we've been quite fortunate that most of our businesses um, participate in this new economy, but we're having to think a lot. We just lost a deal um, that was very interesting, but we just couldn't wrap our heads around how long the lockdown went on. And if the lockdown went on three months extra, we could lose $10 million. If the, if it went on six months, we, you know, we could lose $20 million. We're just very cautious about that. So we're trying to think about, um, you know, what are the areas of the internet that are going to stay healthy? One of, one of the challenges for an acquisition, particularly in a private business, is that the vendor has so much more information about the business than you do as the acquirer. How do you cross that chasm? How do you get comfortable with the business? Well, generally, you know, these businesses are very, very simple. So often, you know, all the transactions happen over the internet in a Stripe account or something like that. So we can do kind of forensic analysis on all of the metrics. If it's recurring revenue, we can figure out churn rates and customer acquisition costs and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, there's a quantitative side and that's the quantitative side. There's diligence checklists, all that kind of stuff. And then there's really the qualitative side. And generally we're trying to buy businesses from people who we have someone in common with where we can really vet the founder and trust them. And going back to that Buffett quote of, you can't do a good deal with a bad person. So we're really spending a lot of time going, is this a good person? Did they give us the heebie-jeebies? Would they want to, you know, would they do something um, sketchy? And is this somebody that would have built a good business, someone we can trust? So, you know, we're obviously doing that side of it. And then we're also going through diligence check checklist similar to what someone else would do. It's just that because these businesses exist in cyberspace, you're not going to go and tour the candy factory. You know, you do that virtually. That sounds ideal. <laughs> it's nice because we don't have to travel very often. 
right? We've done deals uh, where, you know, we don't even get on a plane. Sometimes we do if it's really meaningful to the founder, but for the most part, we're just able to do it over the phone and video. Do you do any public market investing? Because there are great businesses that sort of meet the criteria. Perhaps they're too expensive, but do you look at public markets? Yeah, we do. More personally, so my business partner, Chris, and I both invest in the public market just in our personal portfolios, or we'll use it for hedging. So if we see a big risk in the private businesses, sometimes we'll take some capital and we'll uh, hedge, you know, currency hedge or buy some puts on something as a paratrade. Um, but it's not our primary business. We, I think if you're a value investor, there's something intoxicating about the public market and the idea of being able to buy these businesses at wild prices that wouldn't exist otherwise. But um, to date, we haven't done anything. And every time I look at doing a takeover or a take private or taking one of our businesses public, I talk to friends who've been involved in public companies and they just grab my face and say, <laughs> what are you thinking? Don't do it. You have such a good thing going on. So never say never, but for now, I think that's not on the table. Yeah, don't overcomplicate your life. Mm -hmm. um, you have a 20-minute term sheet. What's the 20-minute term sheet? Oh, the non-binary term sheet. Non-binary. Uh, I'm sorry, I thought... Non-binary. Thought... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, well, we... What um, do you mean non-binding, non non-binary? Well, we... Okay, there's two different, two different things. Is that the gag? Um, I don't know if I've branded it the 20-minute term sheet, but basically um, we don't think that hard about sending out term sheets. They're non-binding documents, but we just like making things really clear to people. And so what I mean by that is I'll spend, I don't know, one to three days digging through someone's business on a high level. And then I'll say, look, here's an indication. This is this is what we would pay. This is how we think about it. That's something that normally a private equity firm would drag out a month. And I don't quite know why. Um, so we'll send that document over and say, hey, directionally, is this right? We'll usually whip those up in 20 minutes. Um, so maybe, maybe I'd said that um, publicly. We did a really interesting thing. So one of the, so we've now got all these different businesses and we sometimes get into a position where we start accidental businesses. And so an example of that was a friend of mine is a podcaster. He had was kind of opposed to doing ads. And so he said, hey, if you like what I'm doing, support me on Patreon. And he did really well and he started making a lot of money. And he said, hey, can you take a look at my numbers and you know, maybe you'll have some business ideas or marketing ideas or whatever. And so I started looking at it and I'm going, holy crap, this is like a SaaS business. He's got recurring monthly revenue that's coming from a broad, diversified customer base, listeners, and it churns at a very low rate because people love his podcast and it's growing at 20 or 30% a year. This is incredible. And he has 95% gross margins and 90% net margins, right? Like it's just completely insane. And so as I dug into it, I started seeing all these opportunities. I was looking at Patreon and thinking, this is not the best way to monetize a podcast. Um, you know, you can't provide your listeners premium uh, additional episodes or ad free or anything like that. And so we ended up building some software to help my friend. And it was just something we spun up through our agencies. And then we had this software and it worked really well for him. His business started growing way faster. He started making more money. And we went, shit, we started a business. We don't want to be in the business of starting businesses. And uh, not only that, but hey, this is actually a venture idea. 
this is a massive market that's untapped where nobody is monetizing podcasts this way. And whoever goes out and builds the infrastructure for that's going to do very well. So we launched a company called Supercast. And uh, I started getting people emailing me and saying, hey, I'm a venture investor. I would love to invest just friends and venture firms we know. And I'm anti-venture. Like I'm, I'm not not anti-venture. It makes sense in some situation, but I'm a bootstrapper. Um, and so we did this thing called a non-binary term sheet. So my psychology is such that if I was to raise money at a high valuation, I would feel guilty if it didn't reach its potential. But I didn't want to be foolish and raise at a non-market valuation. And so we were able to get a $10 million valuation for the business that was really just an idea and some software and stuff. But that was what the market was saying it was, the valuation was. But I did this thing where if it doesn't achieve a million dollars of revenue within two years, the valuation gets cut in half. And so that I call the non-binary binary term sheet. And the idea is that, look, if I'm wrong about this, I don't want to feel guilty. I'm going to get my equity crushed down with everybody else and the investors will get a lot more. Um, and so that's something we did that was kind of neat. But again, it's like, not something we don't want to be starting businesses and raising venture in general. So it's non-binary in the sense that the outcome is non-binary. You don't want yeah. that situation where you either smash it out of the park and you make a whole lot of money or you, it, it does very like well, but doesn't quite yeah. smash well, it. Well, and also that if it, let's say that it does 500K a year and it's profitable and it business. does a million, then it does 1.5 and it's making money. I want to do it at a valuation where my investors can see their money back in five to seven years. And so that was my thinking is it can be successful in either world. And I think that too many venture businesses are just all or nothing. And it creates these perverse incentives where founders have their net worth in the business entirely. Investors are diversified across a hundred portfolio companies and they only see outcomes out of 10. And so the founder has an incentive to protect his egg, but the venture investors say, hey, you got to swing for the fences and take big risks and whatever. Meanwhile, the investor is fine because he's diversified. You wrote a great Medium post uh, about podcasting where you said Joe Rogan might be already a podcast billionaire. What's the, what's the, what was the Medium post about and how, how did you come to that conclusion? Yeah, so I called it um, Howard Stern is getting ripped off. That's and it, yeah. it, it, was, it was interesting. I mean, if you think about it, this subscription podcast thing it really works if you have a habit. So I have a habit, for instance, of getting into the shower every day and I turn on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. I don't really think about it. I just like that. I also subscribe to Sirius and I, because I like Howard Stern and I like his interviews. And so, um, you know, I'm willing to spend quite a bit of money to listen to Howard Stern and I get Terry Gross for free. And I started thinking about it and going, with the podcast infrastructure that exists today, why is Howard Stern uh, on Sirius? He could do this himself. And instead of making $90 million a year, he could make the full 250, 300 million that Sirius gets paid. Sirius gets paid all that money because they provide satellite and infrastructure and studios. But as of five years ago, even that stuff is irrelevant. You can reach your audience via a podcast and you can reach an even larger audience now. And so my argument was that Howard Stern should cut out the middleman and he should go independent and do this and just make insane margin and profits from it. 
Um, and you know, the same goes for someone like Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan is already making $30 million a year, $40 million a year from advertising. And I'm sure it's basically pure profit. If he took an additional 5% of his audience and he converted them to getting an extended interview once a week or an extra episode, or he went subscription only, or even just offered an ad free stream for super fans, um, you know, he would make another 40, 50 million bucks. And when you start thinking about what's a business that makes a hundred million dollars a year in profit, that's growing at 30% alongside with all other podcasts and you're the number one podcast in the world, I think the number is about a billion dollars. So that was how I thought about it. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's probably even a conservative valuation. You might even pay that for that business. Totally. If he ever wants to sell, I'd be very happy to send him a term sheet. (laughs) Um, Dribble is a really interesting business. I've I've poked around on the site before. Um, can you just go into what what the what what is that business exactly? Is it is it advertising or is it it's a platform? How does it work exactly? So Dribble, um, it's actually such a cool story. So um, when I was first starting as a designer, I was a huge fan of this guy named Dan Cederholm. And I read every single book. He was this famous designer, and he wrote written all, written all these books about web design. Um, and so I followed him religiously and he started this website called Dribble. And the idea was he wanted a place to share what he was working on with other designers. Being a designer is kind of a lonely job. You're often sitting with headphones on doing Photoshop for eight hours a day and people are all over the world and often you're not near any other designers. And so just like Twitter, you create an account on Dribble and you can post what are called shots and shots are just like, Hey, check out this logo I'm working on and people can comment on it. People can remix it. They can say, I'm going to, um, you know, do a takeoff on this, or they can sell merchandise around it. They could sell a t-shirt or, you know, sell a digital good for a font or something. Um, so it started out really just as a way for designers to get feedback from other designers. Um, and you know, the business just grew like crazy. And so, um, he started out with a developer named Rich Thornett, <clears throat> Sorry, let me just have some water here. He started it with a developer and they started building more and more features and it turned into this global community where every single day in 10 different countries, designers were meeting up in person, they were hosting uh, you know, conferences and real world events, they were sharing all their work, they were finding jobs. So there's a, you know, the largest design job board on the internet is on Dribble. Um they were, uh, you know, finding clients. Uh, they were giving each other feedback. Just endless numbers of things. And so, um, the business is really multifaceted. It's kind of like LinkedIn for designers. If you're in business, you have a LinkedIn account. If you're in design, you have a Dribble account. And so, it makes money through selling pro accounts. So, if you are, if you're a pro designer. You want your profile to look a bit better. You want clients to be able to message you. You want to be able to search the platform better. Um, you'd pay for a pro account. If you post a job, you'd pay 300 bucks or whatever it is to post a job listing. Um, we let recruiters pay money to search the platform better, give them more powerful tools. Uh, we do recruiting. So if like Adobe wanted to hire a designer, you know, 10, 20 designers, they'd come to us and we do a white glove service. And the neat thing about it is, um, you know, you've got this massive engaged community. And as long as you keep them happy and don't mess with them too much, there's almost infinite numbers of businesses you can build for them. 
right? They have really interesting problems that they need solved that are very valuable to them where for a designer to be able to say, look, you're shy and introverted and quiet. What if we just made it really easy for you to get clients, right? By promoting yourself on Dribbble and we made it easy for the clients to reach out to you. That's really powerful and enables a lot of um, relationships. So we're doing something really, really good in the world in a really cool creative community. Um, and we've been able to build all these neat business lines around it. And uh, just last question, Andrew. Meta Labs is product design. What what is product design for for those who are like me, not not so schooled in the in the art? Basically, like designing software. So, for instance, we designed so this version of Slack. Yeah, we designed Slack. Um, and often we're actually designing and building. So we always like to say, um, you know, if somebody brings us a napkin sketch or the next big idea, we can actually take it from napkin sketch to a real ship product in the app store. Um, so they have a big, amazing design team and amazing engineering team. And, uh, you know, they do everything from R and D for big fortune 500 companies, helping them, you know, with Walmart, we've helped them do their e-commerce experience for over 10 years. We did Amazon photos, um, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, and then sometimes it's with startups, helping them actually build the first version of their product while they get started. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. I love the tinycapital.com website too, by the way. I love that blue screen of death with the uh, the <laughs> old school uh, DOS kind of interface. I see it's... Oh, good. I'm glad you like it. It's a little bit shiny. Now, folks want to get in touch with you to sell you a business. How do they go about doing that? Or they can just say hi. Uh, just tinycapital.com if they wanted to email us about selling us a business or they can just follow me on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash A Wilkinson. Perfect. Thank you very much. Andrew Wilkinson, Tiny Capital. Tiny, I'm sorry. Yeah. Thank you tiny. very much. Yeah, yeah, Tiny Capital sounds too uh, financy. <laughs> <laughs> but we couldn't get the domain of tiny.com. We'll get it one day. <laughs>